Lord Jesus, we thank you so much for the truly greatness that you possess in and of yourself. We thank you for your majesty and your wonder. We thank you for your power. Lord, we pray that every aspect of that power will be real in our lives, that you will guide and direct us, that you will lead us to not just knowing of you, but truly knowing you and your majesty. Lord Jesus, I thank you for each and every individual here. And Lord, I pray that that your Holy Spirit will speak to them in just the way that you need to do so. Lord, we pray for those who are not with us this morning. We pray for our pathfinders who are away and the families with them on a camp out. Bless them this Sabbath day. Keep them safe. We pray for every church in our area in which the name of Jesus is being lifted up. We pray that many people will come to know you through each church, Lord. And we pray that your kingdom will grow not just through Spencerville, but through every church in our area. And Lord, we pray for your soon coming and for your grace to guide us until then. In your name we pray, amen. I want to invite you to open your Bibles to the book of Mark, chapter 6. We are continuing our sermon series on the book of Mark in first service. In second service, I'm also preaching there, but I'll be preaching on, uh, continue our series on the Lord's Prayer. So if you want to stick around, you're invited to do so, we'd be happy to have you join us for Sabbath school and then um, for second service. But here in first service, we're going through the book of Mark and uh, been so grateful to be blessed every week by uh, wonderful speakers within our congregation, Eckhart Mueller and, and Bill Knott and Claude Richley and Anthony Kent. And I hope that you've all been blessed as you've gotten to, been able to hear from these different individuals within our, our church family. You know, one of the things is the world church gets to enjoy them on a regular basis, so I figured it was time that, that we get to enjoy them as well. But we're in Mark chapter 6. Mark chapter 6 is the longest chapter in the gospel of Mark, but we are going to focus on just the opening salvos of the chapter today. Mark chapter 6, beginning in verse 1, and I'm reading from the New American Standard Bible. There's a pew Bible. There's a Bible in the rack in front of you if you don't have one, or of course you're welcome to use your, um, your tablet or your phone, your smartphone, you're welcome to use one of those as well for your Bible. In fact, uh, in the bulletin, I believe it says the password for our Wi-Fi so you don't have to use up your data as well. But we invite you to, to pull out those at this time. Mark chapter 6, beginning in verse 1. Jesus went out from there and came into his hometown. Now we know from other parts of Scripture that his hometown was the town of Nazareth. And his disciples followed him. When the Sabbath came, he began to teach in the synagogue. And the many listeners were astonished, saying, Where did this man get these things? And what is this wisdom given to him? And such miracles as these performed by his hands. Is not this the carpenter, the son of Mary, and the brother of James, and Joseph, and Judas, and Simon? Are not his sisters here with us? And they took offense at him. Jesus said to them, a prophet is not without honor except in his hometown and among his own relatives and in his own household. And he could do no miracle there except that he laid his hands on a few sick people and healed them. Verse 6, and he wondered at their unbelief. And he was going around the villages teaching. And he wondered at their unbelief. There is often 
a tremendous lack of appreciation for those things in which we are most familiar with, whether it be our own families, uh, you know, being away, traveling away for a few days, you realize how much you appreciate uh, your family, you realize how much you appreciate your church being in another part of the world, you realize how much you appreciate your church family, you're glad to meet with those people, but you're blessed to be where you're at. Familiarity can can breed contempt, they say, but it also can breed a lack of appreciation. I was born in Loveland, Colorado, uh, the home of Campion Academy. My dad was a teacher there. We moved from there to uh, Utah for two and a half years. But after that, from basically just before I was four years old until I moved out of my parents' house and well even beyond that, I've lived in what is known as Adventist ghettos. Anyone familiar with Adventist ghettos? If you familiar with any locations where there might be an Adventist ghetto? For those of you that may not be familiar with that term or may not even realize that you are in the midst of an Adventist ghetto, an Adventist ghetto is a geographical area or town with a high concentration of Seventh-day Adventists and or and oftentimes former Seventh-day Adventists as well. The Chattanooga, Tennessee area was an Adventist ghetto that I lived in for college. 10,000 Adventists, they estimate, live in the Chattanooga area, and they estimate that another 10 to 15,000 former Adventists live in the Chattanooga area. A church larger than the actual church exists in the, the Chattanooga area. I would bet that it was the same, probably close to the same proximity here in Silver Spring. This is an Adventist ghetto. Well, I grew up in Adventist ghettos. These ghettos are often centered around an institution of some sort, an Adventist institution of some sort, whether colleges or schools or, or um, hospitals, a conference office, a union office, a division office, a world church office, or in some rare occasions, all of the above, which would be here as well. We lived in Angwin, California for a little more than four years where Pacific Union College is located and also the St. Helena Sanitarium. My dad taught there at Pacific Union College. Then we moved to Loma Linda, California. I lived there for eight years, which is another place where there's a major medical center and a college and a, or, and a university and then La Sierra not too far away. We moved to Kettering, Ohio, and I lived there in Kettering, Ohio area where there's also a hospital and school and, and all kinds of things. All these places are what would be known as Adventist ghettos. Why do I bring this up? I bring this up in the context that familiarity can breed a lack of appreciation for something. A true lack of appreciation. I was one of those that while raised under the umbrella of Adventist systems, I had no true appreciation for who Adventists were or what we believed. And more importantly, I had no real appreciation for the name that we supposedly all claim to represent, Jesus Christ. The Bible tells us that Jesus has gone into his hometown of Nazareth, the place where people would know him best, the place where, where people would be most familiar with him, the place where, where people should have the greatest knowledge and understanding of who Jesus is as a person. And yet those with the greatest knowledge of Jesus seem to be the ones that have the least appreciation for him. In fact, this section of scripture actually continues a theme that takes place throughout 
the book of Mark. Just one chapter before in the book of uh, in the Mark chapter 5, we see a group of people that had knowledge of Jesus' power when he drove out demons. They saw his power demonstrated through the casting out of, of, of these, these demons and these individuals and into the pigs. Yet they didn't really know him. They saw his power and yet they didn't really know him. And so they asked him, out of fear, they asked him to leave their city. He saved them from men that have literally harassed them for, for ages, and yet, and yet when he saves them, they, because they don't really know him, they ask him to leave their city. In Mark chapter 4, the last story of that chapter, Jesus is in a boat with his disciples. A storm arises. The disciples spend time with Jesus every single day. At least that's the picture we get from the Bible. And yet they don't, still don't seem to truly know him. In Mark chapter 4 and verse 38, Jesus himself, the Bible says, was in the stern of sleep on the cushion, and they woke him and said to him, Teacher, do you not care what, that we are perishing? They accuse Jesus of not caring, which, which demonstrates that they don't truly know and understand who he is. And when he shows he cares, verse 39, And he got up and rebuked the wind and said to the sea, Hush, be still. And the wind died down and it became perfectly calm, verse 40. And he said to them, Why are you afraid? Do you still have no faith? They became very much afraid. They, they became even more afraid and said to one another, and listen to the question that they ask, who then is this that even the wind and the sea obey him? They still aren't sure who he is. This theme continues throughout the book of Mark. The Pharisees are watching Jesus closely in chapter 3 to see what he does, and when he heals a man in the synagogue, demonstrating his power and compassion, the teachers of the law, the teachers of the very writings that point to the Messiah, point to the truth about Jesus, show that they don't really know him. And they begin, according to Mark chapter 3, verse 6, they begin to plot in that very moment when he heals a man of his infirmity, they begin to plot how, the Bible says, they might destroy Jesus. At the beginning of chapter 2, some men lower a paralytic into a house, they for, and, 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 and Jesus says to this man, your sins are forgiven. Mark chapter 2 and verse 7 tells us that the scribes thought in their hearts, why does this man speak that way? He is blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? The scribes who, who, who again also were people that, that knew the scriptures and knew the writings of God and were there listening to his message and his words, yet they didn't truly know him. They questioned who he is. They've seen the miracles, they've heard the teachings, they know the prophecies, yet they don't really know Jesus. Time and time again, people that have some knowledge of Jesus or should have some knowledge of Jesus, we see throughout the book of Mark, seem to truly know him the least. Seem to truly know him the least. Could it be the same in our day and age? Could it be that some of those that, that should have the greatest knowledge of Jesus, that are surrounded and inundated with talk about Jesus, could it be at times that those individuals are the people that may in some ways know him the least or appreciate, appreciate him the least? We would hope that in his hometown that it would be different. These people grew up with Jesus they know his family. Some of them probably played with Jesus as a kid. 
They maybe had their Jesus' father, Joseph, earthly father, do some work for him. They went to the temple with Jesus as a young man. They learned together. They must have known of his wisdom. He was a rabbi. When he came into the synagogue, they wouldn't let him stand up and teach, except for that they recognized that he was a rabbi, a learned man. But they demonstrate once again that oftentimes that which we are most familiar with, we are the least appreciative of. That which we are the most familiar with, we are the least appreciative of. Mark chapter 6, back to verse 1. Jesus went out from there and came into his hometown, and his disciples followed him. When the Sabbath came, he began to teach in the synagogue, and the many listeners were astonished, saying, where did this man get these things, and what is this wisdom given to him, and such miracles as these performed by his hands? Notice in Jesus' hometown, there in, in Nazareth, as he got up to teach, notice that, that the people did not reject him, they did not reject him based on what he said. He didn't say anything that caused him, them to reject him. In fact, the Bible tells us that they, that they marveled, that they were in wonder, that they were in awe. They were amazed at, at what he taught, and they were amazed at, at, at his teachings, and they were amazed at his wisdom. They were, they were wondering, how did he become so wise? They didn't reject him based on, on the mental knowledge that he was sharing with them, that he was passing along to them. This, in fact, amazed them. It's like those that may come to church and hear a great sermon, hear a great message, and be amazed and say, man, that person can preach. Then they walk out the door, and that's the last thought they have of it. They're amazed by that. But that's all there is to it. They didn't reject him based on what he said. The second part of verse 2 says that they were amazed by, his, by what he said, by the wisdom given to him, and they were amazed by such miracles as these performed by his hands. They were amazed by his actions. They had a demonstration of, of his power, his, his, his wonder through miracles. They were familiar with the, his miracles, and they were amazed by the miracles that Jesus performed. They were amazed by, by the actions that he did with his life. His actions were not the cause of people truly not knowing him. In other parts of the scripture, his actions did scare people. The demons cast out of the two men. They go into the pigs, and, and this action scares people. There's, this power makes people nervous, and they're, and they're scared of him. And so they ask him to leave. In other places, his words were things that offended people, that, 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 that made people uncomfortable and that caused people to, to push him aside. The, the scribes, when the man is lowered through, through the roof, when Jesus said to them, your sins are forgiven, that his words are offensive to them. And, and so his words did offend. But, but here in his hometown, it's, it's not his words that offend people. It's not the, the, the things, the truth that he's speaking that offends people. It's not his actions that offend people. It's not those things that cause them to reject him or to not truly appreciate him. So what is it? Verse three. Verse three. Is not this the carpenter, 
the son of Mary, and the brother of James, and Joseph, and Judas, and Simon, are not his sisters here with us? The end of verse 3, and they took offense at him. The thing that prevented these people from fully believing is that in their familiarity with Jesus, they had a lack of appreciation for who he truly was. In their familiarity with Jesus, they had a lack of appreciation for who he truly was. They looked around them, they said, don't we know his brothers? And, and look, his sisters are right here hanging out with us, and we know his mom, Mary. Don't we know his dad? I mean, his dad, his dad was a carpenter. It seems that now at this point in time that his dad has passed away since he's not specifically mentioned. But wasn't this, wasn't this man just a carpenter? It's almost that, that Jesus' commonalities are the thing that offend them the most. He's just like us. He's just one of us. So why should we pay any attention to him? They were so familiar with him from a, from a human perspective and from a human point of view that they failed to appreciate and to understand who he truly was. And this is offensive to him. They reject him not based on, on the, the knowledge that he spoke to them. They reject him not based on the actions that he demonstrated for them. They reject him based upon their lack of appreciation for someone they were very, very, very familiar with. I've met time and time and time again in my life People who have sat in my office and, and spoke with me, family members, friends, mentors even in some ways, that have, that have come to me, that have, that have dialogued with me, and they said, you know what? I don't feel like I even truly knew Jesus until I got to a certain age in my life. Or I realized just within the last year that I've been, I've been living my whole life working for for God, and yet I've not truly known who Jesus was, who Jesus is. I'm not really truly understand who he is. There are many people who go throughout history knowing very much about Jesus, being very familiar with the things of Jesus, the actions of Jesus, the teachings of Jesus, and yet they don't truly know Jesus in the core of their being. It's almost that, that they're so familiar with the things of Jesus that it's just like the President of the United States. We know all about him, and yet none of us really care. I believe probably most of us don't really care if we know him personally. Any president, not just this president, but any president. I mean, I've never thought to myself, man, I wish I was buddies with the President of the United States. Has anyone ever woke up in the morning and thought that to yourselves? Anyone? No one? I wanted to be friends with Magic Johnson, an old basketball player. That's about it. I've never really thought about, like, man, I wish I was friends with, with that person. And I thought I had a road in. I once wrote a letter to Magic Johnson's mom because she was a Seventh-day Adventist. And so I thought, man, if I send her a letter, maybe she'll introduce me to her son. It didn't work out. I'm still waiting to hear back on that, on that endeavor. But really, I mean, most of us don't wake up and want... And, we're familiar with the president. We know about the president. We, 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 we judge his character. I won't ask you to raise your hands on how many of you judge his character. 
whether positive or negative. But none of us wake up and say, I want to know him personally. There's many of us that, that almost, it seems like at times, almost have a similar relationship to Jesus. Where we wake up in the morning and we're aware of who Jesus is, we're aware of what Jesus has done, but do we have that burning desire in our heart to know him better in that day? Or is it similar to how we think of the President of the United States? Well, I know about him, I know of him, but we don't really have a desire to know him intimately in a relationship. See, folks, knowledge does not save us, but knowing, knowing Jesus in a relationship level is the key to salvation. Verse 3, is, this not, is not this the carpenter's son of Mary and the brother of James and Joseph and Judas and Simon? Are not his sisters here with us? Is, don't we have all this knowledge of him? And yet they took offense at him. They had no desire to truly know who he was. So they reject him because they have so much knowledge of him, so much familiarity with him as someone in their own town that they they failed to truly know him for themselves. And this lack of faith leads to a lack of power in their town. Jesus said to them in verse 4, a prophet is is not without honor except in his own town and among his own relatives, and in his own household. Pastors love to quote this one in their own hearts and in their own minds when uh, their kids don't listen to them or their church members don't listen to them or whatever it may be. This is one of those texts. But it has nothing to do with us as pastors or anything, but it's about Jesus. Jesus said, a prophet is not without honor in his hometown and among his own relatives and in his, except in his hometown among his own relatives, and in his own household. In this, Jesus was actually connecting himself back to the Old Testament prophets. He was connecting himself to the Old Testament prophets, who you may remember that Jesus, in another part of Scripture, talks about uh, Jerusalem, you who rejected the prophets. And he's showing them that, that they reject him as well. And the Bible then says in verse 5, an interesting statement, and he could do no miracle there, except that he laid his hands on a few sick people and healed them. He could do no miracle there except that he laid his hands on a few sick people and healed them. In some versions, this verse is translated, verse 5 is translated, this, this verse is translated, and he could do no great miracle there. There's some debate about what this means, but I'll give you kind of my perspective today. It can't be claiming I don't believe it can be claiming that because there is no faith, Jesus couldn't do a miracle. Jesus' power is not controlled by you or by I. Jesus' power is not controlled by us. I would never want to serve a God that could, could be controlled by me or could be controlled by you. Jesus is not controlled. His power is not controlled by us. So what does it mean? In the translation we're looking at today, it tells us he could do no miracle, and yet, last time I checked, but then it says, but then he laid hands on people and brought healing. Last time I checked, it seems like a miracle 
to lay hands on someone and heal them. I mean, if I brought Mark back out here and I brought him in front of all of us and I laid hands on him and he was suddenly completely well, how many of, that, of you would think that that seems like a miracle? Would you, would you think that? I mean, I would, I would think that that's a miracle if that, if that happened. And not only would I think if I healed someone that it was a miracle, I would think that's a pretty great and amazing miracle, right? To me, any type of miracle is really pretty great and amazing. So what does this mean that he could do no great miracle or he did no miracle? Notice verse 6. Verse 6 says, and he wondered at their unbelief. Jesus performed some miracles there in the city of unbelief. Jesus performed some miracles. But what is the great miracle that he could not perform? What is the miracle that is speaking of that he could not perform? What does it mean that he could perform no miracle and then it immediately tells us that Jesus healed people? There is only one miracle that I know of that can be done in a person's life that is completely controlled and, and completely dependent upon belief. There's only one miracle that I know of that is completely controlled and dependent upon an individual's belief. Turn with me to Romans chapter 10 and verse 9. Romans chapter 10 and verse 9. Just a few books over. Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, Acts, and then Romans chapter 10 and verse 9. I'll actually start in verse 8. The word is near you, in your mouth and in your heart. That is the word of faith which we are preaching. This is Paul speaking. And then he tells them what he's preaching. That if you confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be what? Saved. You will be saved. Turn back one book to Acts chapter 16 and verse 31. Acts chapter 16 and verse 31. Just one book prior, Acts 16 and verse 31. This is Paul and, Sp Paul and Silas speaking to a jailer. They said, believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be what? Saved. You and your household. Believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved. Romans chapter 10 and verse 9. Confess with your mouth and believe in the Lord Jesus. Believe that God raised him from the dead and you will be saved. And Jesus' own words in Mark chapter 16, verse 16. One more, Mark chapter 16 and verse 16. He who has, what's the word? You there, anyone there? Mark chapter 16 and verse 16. He who has believed and has been baptized shall be what? Saved. He who has believed and been baptized shall be saved. There's only one miracle that I know of that is fully dependent upon your belief and my belief, and that is the miracle of a changed heart, the miracle of salvation. Is not the greatest miracle of all the miracle of a changed heart? I mean, we love the visual miracles, and some of us would like to see more of those, but the truly greatest miracle of all, the great miracle, I believe, is being spoken of here is the miracle of salvation. It is the only miracle that I can find that is completely conditioned upon your belief or my belief. By the way, a belief that 
is given to us as we surrender to God and allow God to put that in our hearts. Jesus will not save us against our belief. He will not save us against our belief. The greatest power any of us can have in our lives is the power of God granting salvation unto us. The power of God granting salvation unto us. Just as in Jesus' hometown, there are some that will miss out on the power of Jesus to change their hearts and receive salvation because they have a lack of appreciation for him because they are too familiar with him. Could it be in our own context, in our own geographical location, could it be in our own world, in our own setting, that we possibly could be a people that are in danger of being so familiar with Jesus that we miss out on the greatest miracle of all of having him change our hearts to be fully in love with him and to fully believe in him. As George Santayana, the naturalist, philosopher, and poet of the 19th and 20th century stated, those who cannot remember the past are condemned to repeat it. Let us not be so naive to think that a lifetime of exposure to Jesus and knowledge of Jesus is what will keep us safe. Let us not be so naive to believe that our name on a certain book in a certain church or in a certain denomination is what will will keep us safe in Jesus. Let us not be so naive to think that, that just because we're familiar with the, the trappings and the, the, the things of religion that, that 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 is what will keep us safe. Let us not be so naive to think just because we've gone through, in my case, I don't know, 18 years, 19 years of Adventist education, let us not be so naive to think that is what will keep us safe. Familiarity and abundance of knowledge can help, but it can also hinder. Familiarity and abundance of knowledge is not ultimately what will bring about the greatest miracle of all. But it will be us truly knowing Jesus. Let us remember the people of Nazareth and let us choose today to be different, to not allow our familiarity to breed contempt, to not allow our familiarity to cause offense, to not allow our familiarity to to cause apathy, to not allow our familiarity to cause a lack of appreciation. But I pray that we allow Jesus to touch each of our hearts that we may truly know the true power that exists in knowing Jesus. And that is the power to change our hearts, to wake up every day and say, I want to be more and more in love with Jesus. Will you pull out your connection card at this time? Those little cards that you received in your offering envelopes that you, when you came in, the one that says they should have, all, have had all the power. The people that knew him best, it seems like they should have had all the power. The people that had the most knowledge, it seems like they should have had all the power. And yet they didn't. Pull out your connection card and you can fill out the front, give us as much information as you're comfortable with giving us. We're not gonna collect these to harass you at all. We simply want to be able to say thank you and appreciate you for coming. If you have any prayer requests, you can put them back there or comments on the back of your card. If you're, if you're here as a guest and you have no relationship with Jesus, we'd love to connect with you and journey with you on that relationship with Jesus. If you're looking for a church family, we'd love to, to, uh, 
to be that church family for you. You can check the box on the right side. But particularly in regard to today's sermon, my response to today's sermon, first of all, was the sermon clear? Let me know if the sermon was clear. This helps me to know if we're communicating uh, clearly to you all. And then the second one after that in regards to this sermon, this is, a, this is our prayer of our heart today. This is your desire of your heart. Lord, help me not to become so comfortable with my knowledge of Jesus that I fail to know him and his potential power in my life. Let us not be like all the groups we see throughout the book of Mark. Let us not be, let, let us not be particularly like the people of Nazareth who had such an amazing opportunity and potential with their location and the familiarity and the close proximity to Jesus, and yet they missed out because they failed to appreciate who he truly was. Let us not be like those people. Let us pray. Jesus, I pray today for myself and for all of the brothers and sisters in here that though we are surrounded, many of us are surrounded with conversations about God and the things of God, help us in the midst of that not to lose sight of the most important type of knowing, and that is knowing you personally as our Lord and Savior. Help our familiarity not to, to cause a lack of appreciation in our hearts. But Lord, help us to truly know you, Jesus. Lord, help us not to be amazed simply at the outward miracles that you do, but Lord, I pray that you will work the greatest miracle that you can perform, and that is the miracle of changing our hearts. Help us this day and each day to wake up both physically and spiritually, desiring to know you better and to be more in love with you. In your name I pray.